I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And look at verse 15. By the way, aren't, aren't we grateful to have a worship team that's so dedicated, works so hard, Pastor Zach leads them. We're just, we're so grateful for each one of you, not just those that serve today, but every one of you. That's a lot of work, and we are grateful that you guys lead us into the heart of worship. I hope you know how that's, uh, to have that quality of worship is a, is a rare thing, and we're, we're thankful for the Lord for that. As you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, I want to set the stage for what you're about to read. Think about the children of Israel. They're in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years. And then an outsider comes. His name is Moses. He's always been an outsider. Even though he was a Jew, he was in the house of Pharaoh. And then after that, he left. He abandoned his people. He went out into the wilderness. So he was a true outsider. But when he comes back, he leads them out of their bondage to the promised land. And in many ways, he was the one that introduced God's people back to God again. They didn't even know what his name was. All they had was passed down information from Abraham all the way down to where they were. But then this man Moses comes and he's working in power and he has signs and he says, this is the name of God, Yahweh, I am. And from the moment that they get led out of Egypt, from the very first moment they start to leave, there's opposition. And every step of opposition, there's miraculous provision, whether they're crossing the Red Sea or whether they're almost ready to starve to death, whether God is giving them water from a rock, whether he's vanquishing their enemies, whatever it might be, the one consistent all along the way is Moses. Some people live, some people die, but Moses is always there. Moses is the one that's always standing between God and the people. And they're acutely aware of this. They're dependent upon him like children are to their father. And we see this in part in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19 where Moses is up on the mountain and he's getting the Ten Commandments and they see what's going on up there. They see a mountain that's on fire. The earth is rumbling. A fence is put up around the mountain because even if a stray animal touches it, they'll die. Lightning is coming down and Moses comes down. And the people say to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not, do not let God speak to us lest we die. So there again, they, Moses is kind of an outsider, kind of an insider. They're like, we can't handle God. You go to God for us and you bring us the word. We can handle you, but we can't handle that kind of intensity, that kind of power. And now here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, they're about ready to enter the promised land. And Moses is an old man. And he's giving his final words to them. This is how you need to behave in the promised land. And in fact, if you get to the end of where he's speaking here in Deuteronomy 31, he says, I'm 120 years old. I can't go out and come in like I used to. And what's more than that, God has made it clear, I am not going to go with you into the promised land. But God will go with you. Okay, so that's where this speech is ending. And in the middle of this speech, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, we read this. Moses assures the people, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right, Moses, in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words... That he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. And so he says, listen, I'm going to replace you. There's going to be someone else like you. An outsider that's also an insider. A deliverer. Someone that's going to lead the people. Not just to the physical promised land, but to the spiritual promised land. And then 1,500 years later, the people are already in the promised land. They've been there many years And Jesus was born. And in Jesus, we see a prophet like Moses. We see God uh, fulfill his promise and answer their request that they hear not from the voice of God directly, but from a prophet like Moses. And so, another prophet like Moses is Jesus Christ, raised up among them. And I want to take some time at the beginning of this sermon before we get to what our response of obedience is. Every time we go to the Word, we should be looking for, what's my response to this? I don't want to just be interested in it. I don't want to just learn new information. What is my obedient response to it? Before we get to that, I want to take some time and really evaluate in what ways was Jesus a prophet like Moses? How were Moses and Jesus alike? And so I've got a chart for you there in your notes. You can fill this in as you go. But the first, I have 10 similarities that I've observed and noticed. And I'm going to try to back it with Scripture. This isn't the only 10. There's more. Maybe you got some more and I'd like to hear of them, uh, hear those from you afterwards. But the first one, I have them somewhat in chronological order here. Both Jesus and Moses were hidden as babes from a king's murderous edict. Now listen, also I want to say this. These are two men that live 1,500 years apart. And just in case you say, well, you know, Maybe maybe there's lots of people that could fit this description. Just make a third column for yourself. And then if you fit any of these descriptions, just put a little check mark in there and just put me too. I, I fit the description too. So far, I don't think any of us fall into this category. Hidden as a babe from a king's murderous edict. Of course, we know that's what made, that's one of the, the, the stories that we hear as children about Moses. His mother knew that they were all, all, all the males were condemned to die. They had to be thrown into the Nile and she made a wicker basket and was smart. She was, she was creative. She drifted him in front of the princess, counting on this maternal instinct in the princess to kick in and save the baby. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, the princess named Moses, Moses, which means to draw out because she drew him out of the Nile. And in that also we see the theme of what Moses' life would be about, drawing the people out of Egypt. But Jesus too, lest you forget, was uh, saved from a murderous king. Uh, Herod wanted to kill anyone that might threaten his throne. And the wise men warned Mary and Joseph they need to leave. And you remember where they fled to? They fled to Egypt. Jesus too went to Egypt, came as an outsider when he came back to serve and, and rescue his people. He too was an outsider. A uh, second commonality between the two, and this naturally leads into the second one, inexplicably both of them are both common and royal. Or in Jesus' case, both human and divine. This idea that both an insider and an outsider. Think about if they would have told, if Moses had been prophesied to 
to Israel while they're in bondage. You're going to have an Israelite who is also in the king's palace. How could that be? They would, they would be impossible to predict how that could possibly happen. A Jew that serves as the prince of Egypt, there's no way that could happen. We're in bondage. And yet somehow God arranged exactly for that to happen. And then, of course, we see the same thing in Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7, how we see that he is both man and God. He never laid aside his divinity. He laid aside some of the independent use of his attributes, but he was always God, always man, and we needed that. Just like Israel needed someone that was they could trust because he was a Jew, but someone that was also an outsider that heard from God. We need someone that's like us. We're like the Jews too. We can't, we couldn't bear to see the face of God. We needed someone like Jesus to come and walk out this human life in front of us so we can see how to live obediently and and he can introduce us. Remember, he's the exact imprint of the nature of God. In Jesus, we see God in human flesh. And so now God has become accessible to us. So we see a second commonality. Inexplicably common and royal. Thirdly, Both these men exchanged glory for poverty. Both of these men, Jesus and Moses, exchanged glory for poverty. In John chapter 17 and verse 5, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying to the Father and He says, I want to go back to the glory that we had before I was here. Jesus remembered. He knew when He was with the Father, the glory, the wealth of heaven, the power of the uh, uh, omnipotent God. And He gave it all up to come and be a human. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 25. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 and there will be for the, <clears throat> you will be for the rest of the, about there for the rest of the sermon. But in Hebrews chapter 11 we see an example that this, Moses did the exact same thing. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, verse 23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So we see he gave up all the riches of Egypt to suffer with the children of God because he considered that a greater reward. Now, while we're here, just again to draw similarity between Moses and Jesus, look at the end of that verse where it says he was looking to the reward. So he he endured the suffering because he was looking to the reward. Look over in chapter 12 in Jesus, in verse the end of verse 2, same thing. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So we see again the same priorities. They were willing to suffer for the glory that was to come. Heaven, for the promised land. They were willing to forego their wealth. Egypt, heaven. A fourth commonality. Oh, by the way, this exchange of glory for poverty. This is the exact opposite of the American dream. We are bombarded with advertisements of how to increase our wealth. And some of it's wrapped up in Christian lingo and tied to certain Bible verses. But it's all, America is all about how successful can you get. As Christians, we have different priorities. We must have different priorities. Because we can't get loaded down and, and, and consumed with priorities here on this planet that are gonna, they're gonna dissolve away. 
We're looking to a better place. We're looking for a more secure rest than what we can pack away here in retirement. We're looking for the hope that is in heaven. A fourth commonality between Jesus and Moses. Uh, Prior to their ministry, they each spent time in the wilderness. In preparation for their ministry, they spent time in the wilderness. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And again, I've mentioned this before. This is, this is a common trait in, in ancient literature. The holy man, the rescuer, he's, his holiness is proved by his time of testing in the wilderness. This is important. This is going to come up later. The holy man, was his holiness was proven by his time of testing in the wilderness with the wild animals. In fact, I think it's, I think it's in the book of Mark where it specifically says that Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals. And we see Moses in the wilderness as, as well. Who else? What other holy men do we see that follow this trait? Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he survived the wild animals. And thus, he was proven to be holy. David, out with the sheep and the lions and the bears, with the wild animals, proven to be the holy man, the chosen one. And here we have both of them. I, for the reference for... Um, uh, Moses, I put Acts chapter 7 and verse 30. You could go back in Exodus and look at it. But Acts chapter 7 is the sermon of Stephen when Stephen's getting stoned. That's a sermon and it's worth you going and reading in its entirety because this is also bringing attention to how it's the same guy that was working through Moses and then through Jesus as well. And that's going to come up again as well here. Not only the time in the wilderness, but specifically 40 days of fasting is our fifth point of Commonality. 40 days of fasting. Jesus spent 40 days fasting. And did you know that Moses spent 40 days fasting when he went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? And this is interesting too. Moses went up on the mountain, spent 40 days fasting, received the Ten Commandments, came back down to deliver to the people, and they were in wickedness and sin and debauchery. He broke the Ten Commandments, and then he goes back up again and spends another 40 days fasting as he then writes the Ten Commandments and carves them out in stone himself and brings them down to the people. What's the sixth commonality? This is one that we see in John chapter 1 and verse 11, where it says, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. They were each rejected by their own, particularly rejected by those who were in bondage. Both Moses and Jesus were rejected by their own who were in bondage. When Moses was still a prince of Israel, he went and he was trying to solve a dispute between two uh, Israelites. And remember what they said to them? Who made you a judge and a ruler over us? And they rejected him. And then even when he comes back, they're very dubious. And they're, even though he's got the power of God in the midst of the, of the, of the um, signs and wonders that he's doing in, before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart keeps getting harder and harder. And then when, remember, Pharaoh increases their workload. And the Israelite leaders come to Moses and they say, you've made us a stink in the Pharaoh's nose. And they're upset with him. So in both cases, you have their people rejecting them. And it's a people who are in bondage. Those that don't reject him are the ones that are let out of bondage. A seventh commonality. This is a big one. Both Jesus and Moses revealed the divine will and thus the glory of God. They were revealers of God's will and God's glory. In John chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18, we see this is, is communicated to us. Uh, 
Let me turn there real quick. You don't have to. If you want to punch it in your phone, you can. John chapter 1. In verse 17, it says, for the law, well, first of all, verse 16 says, for his fullness, for from his fullness, that's Jesus, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. When the law was given to the people, that was grace. That wasn't just, I mean, that was a gracious thing because no other nation had it been revealed what God's will was. And so Moses delivered the grace of the law, but grace upon grace, Jesus came. And in the same way that Moses delivered the law, Jesus delivered grace and truth. And it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So at the very beginning of the book of John, John is making comparisons between Moses and Jesus. And he's saying, by the way, Jesus is greater. Moses couldn't see God face to face. Jesus was with God side by side. He is God. And so they have both revealed the divine will. Uh, if you want to plug into your phones, you can look in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 11, or you can jog over there in your Bibles real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And here we see, again, this comparison of Moses and Jesus Christ, both bringing the glory of God, the will of God, but Jesus is superior. See, after the resurrection of Christ, all these believers, they're looking at all these similarities between Moses and Jesus. And here in 2 Corinthians, we see it in, in, uh, in uh, Stephen's speech, we see it in Hebrews. They're trying to draw, con- the writers are all drawing contrast and saying, don't mistake, Jesus isn't just like Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the Son of God. And here we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7, it says, now if the ministry of death Carved in letters on stone. What's he talking about? The ministry of death carved on letters of stone. The Ten Commandments were carved on stone. And how was it the ministry of death? Because now the expectations were given. And if you fail in these expectations, the punishment is what? Death, right? So it's a ministry of death carved in letters of stone. But he says, it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, once what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. We look back at the Ten Commandments. We think if that was the communi- if that was the only communication we have from God, we would be disappointed. It's two stone tablets with ten rules written on it. But at the time, it was a glorious thing. It came with such great glory. The mountaintop was was melting. Uh, Moses' face was glowing. They couldn't bear to see it. That's the glory that it came in. And now we have such an exceeding glory. The law written in our hearts. We see the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have the fullness of God's communication here before us. And so we're seeing a similarity between what Moses brought and what Christ brought. And that leads us to the eighth commonality. Both Moses and Jesus had their faces shining with the glory of the Father. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? In Matthew specifically it says that Christ's face shone like the sun. And after Moses came down from the mountaintop, his face shone so much that people were terrified by it. They had to cover it with a veil. They didn't want to see him anymore. 
And also Moses was happy to cover his face with the veil because he knew the glory would fade the longer he was away from God. And he didn't want the children of Israel to be discouraged. An eighth or a ninth commonality. This from Acts chapter 7 and verse 35. Moses was both a ruler and a redeemer, just as Jesus is ruler and redeemer as well. In Acts chapter 7, we see this described to us. Stephen is giving his final sermon before his uh, execution. And he says, This Moses, whom you rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and a redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so Stephen is saying, Listen, just as your fathers rejected Moses, so you have rejected Christ. And now the warning for us is going to be, let's make sure we don't do the same thing. One last point of commonality. They were both sacrificial intercessors. Of course, we know how Jesus was a sacrificial intercessor. Let me read, or perhaps you can turn there to Exodus 32. Here's a story often overlooked about Moses where we see he too was not just an intercessor, but a sacrificial intercessor. In Exodus chapter 32, this is after he comes down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments. They've committed adultery. They've made a golden calf. They're committing sexual immorality. God wants to destroy them. And what does Moses do? In verse 25, When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around me, said, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate, through the gate to the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Um, Verse down in verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, So he doesn't know. But he's going to plead on behalf of the people and say, perhaps, maybe there's a way I can make atonement for what you've done. And then he goes up to God and he says, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is saying, Lord, if you can possibly forgive them, I can't even ask. I'm just saying, if you could, but if you can't, Count me with them. He wasn't guilty of the idolatry. But he's saying, if you're going to blot them out, put me with them. I'm going to be blotted out with them. And in that we see sacrificial intercession. We see similarity. Christ committed no idolatry, and yet he was punished on our behalf. Now all these are interesting. But what can we say with certainty? Do we know for sure this is what God had in mind? Did God ordain all of these things? These are good observations, but what do we know for certain? Finally, I ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear how Moses, uh, how Jesus was a prophet like Moses. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And here's where we get to our obedient response. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus. Meaning, I want you to contemplate Jesus. I want you to take time to set your mind on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also 
was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. See, even though Moses predated Jesus, even though Moses was a faithful servant of the Lord's house, Jesus, though he was a faithful servant, was the builder of the house. He says every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We know in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus humbled himself to become a servant. There's no question that Jesus was also a servant, but he was a better servant because he was also a son. Now here's where it gets interesting. The end of verse... Uh, Six, it says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So he's saying we're part of the same house of Moses and of Jesus, but there's some conditions to evaluate whether or not you really are in the house or not. Let me finish reading this passage real quick. Here's, where, here's what I would like to preach. I would love, I don't even, you know, I had this idea before I even came to the Word of God, uh, when I knew I was doing uh, the, the whole comparing our salvation with the deliverance from Egypt. I thought, this is really going to preach. This is going to be good. I can get up here and I can say, if the Lord has brought you out of Egypt, I can promise you He's going to bring you into the promised land. That's a, that's a good sermon. That would be fun to preach. Hey, don't be discouraged. If God got you out of Egypt, He'll get you into the promised land. And then I came... To Hebrews chapter 3, and it teaches the exact opposite. Down in verse 12, it talks about unbelieving hearts and how some of them died in the wilderness. Verse 16, it says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who were the people that rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness. So some of the people that came out of Egypt never made it to the promised land. And in the middle here, we have a warning. Don't let yourself be one of the bodies that falls in the wilderness. Those who rejected were those who were delivered. And what does he say? Verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? This is why it's so important that we come to the Word of God and we see, what is the obedience being asked of me? Verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Okay. So, what do we do with this last half of this chapter? To me, I look at this and I think, I want to make sure I'm getting all the way into the promised land. I don't want to be one of those bodies that fell in the wilderness. And so I want to look at what is prescribed in here. How do I know whether I'm one of those that is in the household of God or not? And in this final, these final verses, we see four steps of obedience that you can take that you might be assured that you are of the household of Christ, that you are counted among the believing ones who will enter into the promised land. So we have four steps of obedience. The first one we've already read in verse 6. It says, if we are indeed the household, uh, of his household, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We hold 
fast. You know, when I think of the, when I think of that term, hold fast, my memory goes back to 2 Samuel and David's mighty men. You remember the mighty men that David had that were his band of brothers around him? And one of them killed like 800 people with a spear. Another one killed 300 people. Another one jumped into a pit and killed a lion. But the one that I'm thinking about is Eleazar. And he was fighting the Philistines and the army of God was around him. And the army of uh, Israel receded. They backpedaled. But Eleazar didn't. He stood his ground. The Philistines surrounded him. And the Lord filled him with power. And he slayed them with his sword. And it said his hand grew weary. But his hand clung to the sword. And it says that the Lord wrought a great victory that day. And I just think if you're in the battle... And you feel the grace of God upon you and he is moving your sword to sway your enemies. And, and you sense like almost like you're hanging on for the ride because the spirit is the one moving your sword just as much as you are. The one thing you want to make sure you do is hang on. Don't let go of the sword. And that's the admonition here that the writer of Hebrews gives to you and to me. Hold fast. Don't let go. And what is it that we hold fast to? Two things. Our confidence and our boasting in hope. So our confidence, that's how we're sure. Our boasting, we make sure other people know that we're sure. And what are we confident in? What do we boast in? We boast in our hope. Right there at the end of verse 6. Our hope. The longer that you're in the community of God's people, the more that word is going to come up and you're going to hear about it. What is our hope? Listen, there's all kinds of things that can replace our hope. There's lesser hopes that we can get confused with our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is this and nothing short of this. This is our hope. You ready? Our resurrection from the dead at the return of Christ. That's what we put our hope in. So anything else that happens between now and our resurrection at the return of Christ... We're not disappointed because we're not hoping in that anyway. You can't be disappointed in that which you have no hope in. So we're not hoping in healing. We're not hoping in preventing death. We're not hoping in the right president to get elected. We're not hoping that, you know, that our, our Christian nation will be preserved and restored. Our hope is after death, we're resurrected when Christ returns. That's our hope. That's our confidence and that's our boasting. So we need to hold fast. Look at verse 7 through 11. Not only that, the second step of obedience is going to challenge our first step. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. When they were in the wilderness, that was one 40-year day of testing. Where your fathers put me to the test. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they will not, they will, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. They weren't going astray physically. If they were here today, they'd, they'd be here, right here. They'd be going to church every Sunday. But they went astray in their hearts. And in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Second step of obedience. If you're going to really be holding fast to your confidence and boasting in the hope of Christ, you need to be able to endure testing. You must be able to endure testing. Let me tell you this. This is important. We look back in hindsight and we see they're being tested. It didn't feel like testing at the time. 
What did it feel like to them? What they perceived as delay, God designed as a test. But to them, it felt like just a delay. I thought we were going, I I thought we were leaving Egypt and going right into the promised land. Moses, you never said anything about 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. They thought it was a delay. God designed it as a test. What feels like a delay in your life right now? Is there anything that you're, you were certain you were supposed to get by now? Or you're, you're, you, you know it's coming. But Lord, why isn't it here yet? It's a test. Is your faith going to endure? Are you going to keep your hope and your confidence and your boasting in Christ? Just because it's a delay doesn't mean it's not intended by God. It's designed for a test. What they perceived as disaster, God designed as a test. If you face disaster in your life, some of you have, I know. I've wept with you. I've seen the sorrow in your life. Feels like disaster. It's a test. What they perceived as divine neglect or divine mistreatment was designed by God as a test. You see how in the testing it doesn't feel like a test at all. That's where faith kicks in. That's where hope assures. Generally, what they perceived as an injustice, God had designed for testing. And so as we read these verses, we need to endure the testing. Don't avoid it, endure it. Don't seek to escape it, endure it. James chapter 1 and verse 2 makes it very clear the purpose of the testing. I can read that to you real quick in these closing moments. James chapter 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We endure testing. Now the third and fourth steps ensure your ability to obedient to be obedient to that first step. First step is hold fast. We hold fast even though we go through testing that feels like disaster and neglect and injustice. Thirdly, verse 12, we need to guard our hearts. You need to guard your heart. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So here, I, I, you know, we have the command to take care, but I see a contradiction, a perplexity, a paradox here. He says, take care, brother, brother and sister, that you don't have an unbelieving heart. To me, the defining mark of whether I'm a brother or a sister is if I have a believing heart, marked by the righteousness of Christ. Here he says, make sure that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. I think what should be noted here is that the unbelieving heart is not so noticeable even to the one that possesses it. But there's something that God puts into our life, kind of as a litmus test, to help us understand whether or not we have a believing heart. Do you know what it is? It's that wilderness testing. Those things that we want to avoid in our life, the things that we think we don't deserve, the things that like, oh man, this has gone totally wrong. No, no, God has graciously put that there to test you. So you can identify whether you are of the faith or not. I believe that longevity, completion, what Jesus called fruit, this is the surest indicator of belief. Not whether you claim to believe, not whether you've been baptized, not whether you're excited or busy in the Christian work, but whether you endure. Because there was a lot of people that came out of Egypt and a lot less that made it to the promised land. And Jesus said, narrow is the gate, narrow is the way 
that leads to eternal life. And why it is the one that leads to destruction. We have to guard our own hearts. There was a lot of people that were along for the ride. There was a lot of people that were going through the right motions, but their hearts had wandered away from the Lord. There's a lot of people that go to church every Sunday. They even serve in church. But their hearts have wandered. Make sure it's not you. You need to guard your heart. And not only that, verse 13, in a sense, we need to guard each other's hearts as well. In verse 13, we have the command to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin creeps in, hardens our heart. Listen, we cannot, we cannot afford to coast as believers. We cannot rest on that prayer we said when we were eight years old. Oh, I said the prayer. I'm going to heaven. I know it for sure. We have to be sure. Sureness comes through testing. Sureness comes through a guarded heart, through holding fast. And we stir one another. We encourage one another by exhorting each other as long as it is called today. This is a continual, present tense endeavor. As those faithful few, we too must preserve and persevere in our belief if we are to enter the promised rest. We follow not Moses, but Jesus, who built the household to which we belong. If, if we hold fast, we endure testing, we guard our hearts, and we exhort one another as long as it is called today. I'm going to have our worship team come forward. We're going to close in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing a song that kind of is designed to steal our hearts. That word if is a scary word, but it's right there in Scripture. There's no one that's going to make it to the promised rest if they're not holding fast, if they're not enduring testing, if they're not guarding their hearts, if they're not exhorting one another as long as it is day. That's why it's so important for you to be plugged into the body of Christ. Someone else is depending on you. We need each other. As much as as you, maybe you feel like you need a sermon every week to really encourage you and keep you going. You're someone else's sermon. Someone needs to hear from you. Don't be isolated during the week. We've got to be plugged in to the body of Christ. Let's stand. I want to say a prayer and then we'll sing. Lord, these are hard words to hear sometimes. Lord, I pray that if there's an unbelieving heart here, you would reveal it to the one that has it. Lord, we, we, we must be concerned about nothing greater than our own hearts. Do, are we of your house? Do we have that faith? Are we holding fast? Lord, we don't want to coast. We don't want to have an easy faith, a fake faith, a shallow faith. We want to be among those who endure. So, Lord, we invite the testing. We invite the trial. And we pray for the grace to endure, that you would be glorified in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.